I'm Aaron Lammer. Today on the books that changed us, Alex Marr, the author of Witches of America. Welcome, Alex Marr. Hi, Aaron. How are you? I'm good. Tell me, where am I speaking to you from? And is this where you normally are, or is this an abnormal place for you to be? That's a good question right now. Um, I am in upstate New York in a little hamlet that has been my main home for the past few years. So I'm actually standing in my writing studio. I have to say that I'm like someone who likes to look at pictures of different people's writing rooms on the internet. So can you describe your writing room? What kind of environment you like to work in? Oh, yeah. So it has these big old windows. And when we moved here, there were like five layers of old, old, old wallpaper. I mean, we had to really restore the house. And so I spent all this time scraping off this wallpaper and I decided I wasn't going to do anything to the walls. There are these... um, very scratched over looking white plaster walls that I think of as like Cy Twombly walls. And I figure like having this sort of imperfect looking environment is somehow related to like the reality of the writing process. I don't know. But then I also have some Catholic relics that I I have a, an old portrait of Santa Rita who's um, recognizable because she's a nun with a thorn in her forehead when she's represented. And she's the patron saint of, among other things, Impossible Tasks, which also is good if you're on book uh. <laughs> And, um, but yeah, and I've got this big, kind of like one of the nicest pieces of furniture I have is this old dark wood desk with one of those like dark leather tops and like nothing else in my life is this nice. So, <laughs> so that's been my writing desk for like many years now. Could you tell me about a book that influenced you to want to become a writer, or you've also made films, feel free to take the filmmaker route as well, but something that you read and and said, oh, this makes me want to do stories. Yeah, I, so when I was maybe 13 years old in school, I had an English teacher who assigned Sula by Toni Morrison, which I think is kind of fantastic that she did that. considering that at least my memory of it is that everything we read before that was dead white British people. This, you know, so I, um, you know, I, I was someone who was really an obsessive reader just as a, even like a very young kid. I was just one of those kids, but some part of me had assumed there was this unspoken truth that literature was written by deceased Brits. And I'm totally serious when I say that. Like if you'd asked me up front at 13, I would have understood that wasn't technically true, but I had no sense of like literature in the present tense, you know? And um, I'd never, I'd never read anything with language like that. The sentences have this incredible clarity, but they're so deeply lyrical. And um, I just remember that as sort of a lightning bolt. I just got really fucking lucky. Like in the eighth grade, I uh, had as my English teacher, um, Christine Scott, who is a really admired fiction writer at this point. But at that time, she must have been in her early 40s. And 
was, you know, raising two boys on her own and teaching at this girls' school that I went to. It was around that same time that through her, um, you know, she turned me on to you know, Ray Carver, Susan Minot, Mark Richard, who was a really exciting short story writer at the time. I mean, it was nuts, like material that was extremely, uh, oh, Barry Hannah? I mean, Barry Hannah for 12 year olds. <laughs> I mean, it was really, it was really wild. And that was just an enormous, enormous big deal. What were like the discussions of uh, Barry Hanna books uh, with thirteen uh, year olds like? Like, what do you remember um, talking about? I mean, it was, it was. Uh, I think that her approach is best summed up as sort of talking to us as her equals, as if we were her equals. I mean, there's really very few English teachers for eighth and ninth graders who would kind of view you in that sort of sophisticated way. It's, I feel like I hallucinated it, to be honest. Tell me about a book that changed you, a book that you feel like the experience of it has sort of radiated through your life. So at some point, I think it was in my mid twenties, I had this weird experience where in spite of the fact that I'd really I'd really been a very intense reader my whole life. It was just something that was really part of who I was. I stopped reading completely. I stopped reading and I stopped writing and I really was, I felt incredibly lost. I had started working at New York Magazine as a fact checker, kind of randomly. And it was my first window into journalism of any kind. I hadn't really thought about nonfiction as a craft. I hadn't really thought about what it means to be, you know, a really terrific feature writer. But I landed in this environment and I learned pretty much like everything that I know now in a lot of ways. Um, but it was really disorienting because I, I, I was just so in between. I felt like I had no voice. I had no direction. I was just really lost in this classic kind of like early 20s, mid 20s kind of way. And I ended up passing by this old library where they had, you, you know, like libraries will have those sales where they put the carts out in front and they, you know, there are all these like library books they don't want anymore. And you pay like a dollar. Oh, sure. So I saw that they had this uh, Philip Roth novel, actually like kind of maybe a first edition, like a really beat up first edition of um, The Professor of Desire which is one of his 70s books. You know how like in the 70s, he was churning out those really lean novels, like one after the other, like every year and a half. And so I picked it up just because I knew him by name. And the thing is that it's really not one of his great novels. It's fine. But like his voice and the humor and the ease of it, you know, like the deceptive ease with which he writes really struck me. And so... I finished the book after not having like picked up a book probably in like a couple of years. I mean, at all. And then I moved on to, uh, you know, the ghost writer and the dying animal and American pastoral. And just, I, I just jumped all around his career and probably read like eight of his uh, novels in a row. And it just jump started me. I feel like whatever I got out of Roth during that period was the reason why I didn't walk away from the part of me that wanted to find some kind of voice for myself. And it's funny because like a lot of those novels, especially the ones that I started with of his are now 
I don't know, they're being like revisited as misogynistic or what have you. And it's just not how I've ever experienced him. I felt like they were brutally honest about the way in which a certain very recognizable kind of man views women. And so it just sort of made it all the more accessible to me, even though the female characters weren't identifiable. I actually am sort of fascinated just by artists who are able to keep up that kind of industrial production. I wonder for you, working at New York Magazine as a fact checker, it's a sort of a form of industrial writing process. I wonder like what that kind of exposure to sort of industrial writing techniques, if it had any effect on you and after you broke that reading slump, like how you came to think about that on the other side. I don't know if I would use the word industrial, but there's a lack of preciousness to mm. that approach that I think I really needed to sync up with, right? I think if you start out as someone who is this really serious reader, and I think for a lot of people, literature, you know, with like a capital L is really at an arm's distance and something has to happen in your life to bring it closer, whether it's sort of, you know, a mentor, like I mentioned, or, you know, whatever. And so there was, there's something to the humor of some of those 70s books in particular of his that... I had never seen before. And it just seemed very straightforward. Like I didn't start with Sabbath theater, which is like sentences that are multiple pages long and, you know, really like this incredibly alienating central character. Like these were really digestible books, but written with like incredible intelligence. And, but also like around the same time, you know, within a couple of years, I ended up instead making a documentary. And the documentary helped me to sort of just reduce everything to visuals, right? So you point the camera this way, then you point it that way. And there's plenty of, you know, the interview process obviously is a little more cerebral than that. But the combination of the two just gave me the permission to sit down and write. I just felt a lot freer, you know, like, okay, if I point the camera at this scene, if I don't have a camera, how would I describe it? I just told myself that and I decided to sort of drag it all down to earth in that way. And I just found that really made it click. Okay. So my next question is, uh, I guess it's a bit of a multiple choice because I've read your excellent book, which I guess grew out of that documentary, right? You did the documentary and then you wrote afterwards. Yeah. I wrote Witches of America after the doc because um, one of the real central characters, Morpheus, I met her through the doc. She's featured in like about a third of the movie. Okay. So I know that you're currently writing a book as well, but my question is whether it's um, The Witches of America or your new book, what's a book that's been like really deeply embedded in your mind while you're working on one of your own books? Like a book that it could be a reference or it could be a book that you actually just kind of are obsessively thinking about. What's one book that's uh, been stuck in your head while you were writing? So with Witches of America in particular, but also just in general with my work, there is a book I think back on every now and then. I've probably read it like five times. It's not for me a sort of personal touchstone. It doesn't have an obvious connection to Witches of America or the new book, but I think it's more about that it kind of freed me up while I was writing Witches. And that's um, Janet Malcolm's book, The Silent Woman. 
I think it's kind of an esoteric book to bring up. And like Janet Malcolm in general, aside from the journalist and the murderer, is a little bit inside baseball, you know, because I think her her best moves are appreciated by people who are also writing nonfiction, perhaps. But so The Silent Woman is another pretty slim book. I feel like I'm, I'm mentioning entirely like really slim books, but it, I think it's just this little tour de force. And it's about Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes and their relationship in some ways. But really, it's about the process of trying to write an intimate biography of someone who you do not know or did not know well, someone who valued their privacy, and and also who gets to say that they've written the definitive story of someone's life, right? And so it it opens up with this sort of wrestling between Ted Hughes' estate and Sylvia Plath. So Ted Hughes' family and his sister seems to play like a big part in this. They control Sylvia Plath's estate, if I'm getting this right. And they just, you know, Ted Hughes went through hell after her suicide and was really criticized for burning some of her final journals. So the state, you know, there's a lot going on there, a lot of drama with the suicide story and sort of like a, a man imposing his will on his dead wife's uh, body of work and all that stuff. But really, it's kind of about making a story out of very little what Janet Malcolm herself is doing is she does something really, really simple that I think is so brilliant because it ends up being so compelling on the page. She seems to just travel around in England, meeting with people who have tried to write biographies of Sylvia Plath. And she starts with one that was this brilliant attempt by a, a scholar she knows somewhat. And it was really like the book was really torn up in the press uh, for various reasons. And then she goes to people who are sort of less and less prominent biographers until you get all the way down to a guy who lived in the flat next door when Sylvia Plath killed herself at home and who thinks that this gives him the right to tell an important alternative version of Plath's life story, right? And, um, each of these people become a player, right? So it's this super meta thing, but it seems, it just seems to be about something so much bigger. You know, it's like an incredible book about the nature of celebrity and when we're really drawn to public figures in a way that seems kind of prurient, you know? And I think it's sort of structurally, stylistically, an amazing book to look at as someone who writes literary nonfiction because of sort of like the the tricks that Malcolm pulls. But also it's sort of, uh, at the time it gave me the confidence to believe that even if I got what seemed like nothing out of sources I was really counting on, there was always going to be something. And it was a matter of me understanding how to look at it and frame it. Like if I went in with enough determination and if I sort of just, pursued these conversations relentlessly, it wasn't really going to be about the level of access. That if you're observant, there's still going to be something there. Like those conversations that seem tangential, you know, she's not speaking with Plath. She's not speaking with Ted Hughes. You can still tell this much bigger picture. Yeah. And that, that idea of 
Like I can imagine that when you were doing Witches of America, there's a question of like, oh, am I going to, is it going to be like the most famous pagans in America? Is it going to be <laughs> the most out there or like the most suburban person who you wouldn't think like there's sort of just infinite number of ways to represent a community, even a community as small as like Sylvia Plath biographers. Yeah. You know what I, what I would add to that is, um, you know, if you're writing about the occult, the occult is by definition, you know, it means, you know, the veiled, the hidden, right. It's a community that's built on secrets, right. And sort of the fetishizing of certain information and like a series of inner circles that open up to you, hopefully like Russian dolls you know, and so I had to really come in with this, I had to come in prepared to be shut out of some of those circles, right? How close am I going to be able to get to certain kinds of rituals, information, and sort of community gatherings where like outsiders really aren't welcome? And so I think the book ended up going deeper than I would have anticipated, but I needed to trick myself into feeling okay with whatever the level of access ended up being. So in that same way, you know, this Janet Malcolm book is like this Russian doll of, you know, as, as you said, Sylvia Plath biographers as this secretive community. Um, it really is also in its own way, kind of like a book about trying to penetrate a hidden layered world. Alex, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, of course. Thanks a lot, Aaron. The Books That Changed Us is made in partnership with Longform and MailChimp Presents. The show is produced by Janelle Pfeiffer, art by Joelle Avellino, music by me, Aaron Lammer. Thank you to Alex Marr for sharing the books that changed her. You can find the whole by the books lineup at MailChimp.com slash presents.